Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get the inside scoop from those in the know in the entertainment and music industry and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I can say this with the 162 episodes of Beyond the Album Cover that has been done, I have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, Grammy Lifetime Achievement recipient, and in 2021, this year, he will be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. From 1973 to 1983, this man has literally and figuratively had his hands over any cut that you heard from the Osley Brothers. And then from 84 to 87, the spinoff group, Isley, Jasper Isley, Insatiable Woman, Caravan of Love, the whole nine yards. So it is my honor, it is my privilege to introduce a legend to Beyond the Album Cover, Mr. Chris Jasper of the Isley Brothers and Isley Jasper Isley. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, Mr. Jasper. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show with you. Not a problem. I appreciate you wholeheartedly taking the time out of your busy day to come on and do this interview with me. Yeah, man, my pleasure. Yes, sir. So let's go ahead and hop right into it. So growing up in Cincinnati, musically, were you self-taught or did you do a combination of self-teaching self and doing traditional lessons? Well, um, I used to play by ear all the time. Uh, when I was like seven years old, I used to play the songs I heard on the radio. And uh, my mother saw me doing that. And she, uh, she said, Chris, you have talent for, you know, music. You, you should learn how to read music. So um, she suggested that I take lessons from uh, this professor uh, that she knew that went to our church. And uh, I learned a lot about songwriting at that time. And I learned how to read music. And so um, I guess that was the beginning of my, my songwriting um, education. All right. Now, as far as songwriting goes, what normally comes to you first? Is it the hook first, lyrics, or you lay down a skeleton of the groove and then write? Well, usually, usually uh, when I'm practicing, I get the idea, you know, for like a, a good chord progression. Usually that's how it comes, uh, a good hook section. And then uh, what I'll do is I'll work on that, you know, create a bridge, uh, you know, incorporate a melody. And then, you know, lyrics usually come last, but sometimes I'll get the title while I'm working on the hook section, you know, so, but that's usually the way I construct songs. Sometimes the whole thing will come to me at one time. Sometimes I'll dream a song, you know, it, it all depends uh, on the inspiration, I guess. Right. And prior to you coming into the Osley Brothers, originally it was a three-man group with Ronald, Rudolph, and O'Kelly. And they recorded Shout. They re-recorded Twist and Shout in 62, which was later made popular when the Beatles covered it and so on and so forth. And they did This Old Heart of Mine on Motown, written by Holland Dozier Holland. Now, I was doing my research and saw that your sister married into the Osley family when she married Rudolph. Yeah, um, I think I was about four years old when that happened, because <laughs> um, we knew each other, you know, all our lives really. You know, the two the two families lived on the same block, and um, you know, at some point, Rolf and Elaine got together. You know, but I was I was a, a young kid at the time. Right. So you know, with those early hits coming out, and by the time 
yourself, Ernie, and uh, forgive me if I'm uh, missing the, the third member that, that was oh, added. Barbara. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. By the time you all came into the Ozzy Brothers, how did you guys manage to change their sound from the traditional 60s three-man vocal R&B group to the funk soul stuff that we all know and love? Well, it was kind of, um, it was a progression of things that happened. Um, but, you know, personally, uh, when I would write a song or if I would play a part on a song, I would try to play it in a little different way than uh, say other people who were playing, you know, keyboards at the time. Um, I, I wanted to add some, some things that I learned from classical music. I'd add some things I learned from jazz, studying jazz. And I created, you know, um, kind of my own chord structures. And that really did change the sound of the music uh, going forward. Now, of course, you know, Ernie doing solos, you know, the, the, the kind of rock kind of sound. That that also added to the sound, uh, the new sound. So uh, it was a it was kind of those combination of things, and and the, and also the type of songs that we were writing. You know, they were different than the than, than the songs before. Right, and you also came up under the great jazz pianist and composer Billy Taylor. You went to Juilliard. So what was that like being under him and getting that formal training, and then be able to add that to what was already established with Ronald Rudolph and O'Kelly by the time you came into the group? Well, studying study with Billy Taylor was a great experience. I mean, he was a great guy, you know, uh, in addition to be, being such a, a genius and a great a piano player uh, and, and composer. I mean, um, that was a great experience because I learned a lot from him, you know, as far as, you know, uh, different ways to play. Uh, different chords and, and and different lines and everything, and um, he was he was he was a good mentor. Uh, but uh, as far as the things that I learned from my education, my musical education, I certainly did apply them when I wrote songs. Um, like if you, you hear some of the songs, they have uh, intros in the beginning. Some of them are you know classical in nature. Um, you know, other ones have a little bit more jazz or something and incorporated in them. But that, but I did try to incorporate a lot of things that I learned in, in, in my musical education and put it into the music. And I think that, that added to the, the change in sound and everything. Right. And knowing that jazz is more of a feel genre where you can either go by the book or go by feel. So were there times where you kind of had to restrain or you can say, hey, the vibe is good and I could just let loose in the studio and when I'm going on with a solo. Yeah, well, everything I did was very uh, kind of calculated because I didn't want to go too far into jazz to change the genre, but I just wanted to add a you know, taste, little bits uh, uh, of, of, of jazz, little bits of classical, and in particular, the romantic period, you know, guys like Debussy and Ravel, uh, even some Gershwin uh, uh, type of harmonies and things. So it was it was a very calculated thing. It, it, it had to be subtle. You know, it, it couldn't be too much jazz because it would change, you know, the genre. We, we, we'd have to be categorized as another, you know, another genre. So, uh, but there's, there's definitely a lot of jazz incorporated into some of the chords. Uh, that I use and and also classical too. 
Right. And being from Cincinnati, uh, mentioned Sid Nathan and King Records. King Records, for those of you that don't know, uh, James Brown and the famous Flames. And what was that like seeing King's success and then everybody that came out of Cincinnati after that, like Bootsy, Catfish, Wardell, getting with Parliament, and then up the road, up 75, everything that was coming out of Dayton with the Ohio players, Slave, Lakeside, Zap, and Heatwave. Man, you just said a mouthful. <laughs> that was that was a lot of uh, great, you know, successful bands and, and individuals. Uh, I remember King Records and and being inspired by that, you know, because Cincinnati, Cincinnati is a big town, but it still kind of has a small town feel to it, you know. And um, having you know, just a record label and and you know famous people, you know, recording that was a, was was like an inspiration. But um, the Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio area had a lot of people, especially in the funk category, uh, come out of there. I mean, I don't think you mentioned Roger and Zap, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so many uh, funk bands came from there. And that's, I don't know why. You know, people ask me, well, you know, is there something special about Ohio? <laughs> and I always tell them, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, because I was studying, I was studying music, you know, and um, that, that was my thing, you know, trying to learn everything I could learn about, you know, orchestration and how to, you know, write for different instruments and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. So um, I was kind of involved in that, but I was also hearing everything else too. I was always a student of uh, what was going on, you know, uh, in the business, you know. Right. And from what I was hearing from all those bands that came out of Dayton, a lot of their parents had good jobs working, I believe, in a factory or something where it was good money. And so they were able to buy instruments and they had these big basements where they were able to cut their teeth, hone their crafts. So by the time they uh, got big, it was on. And I'll be remiss if I didn't uh, mention the Ohio players as well. Mm -hmm. Ohio players, that's right. Right. And then, they, then you have some people come out of Cleveland, too, you know, on, on the north side of the state. You know, so Ohio was, you know, a lot of talented people came from there. Right. De definitely that Ohio. And then later on, Minneapolis took over with everything that came out of Minnesota. And you mentioned Cleveland, the OJs, Levert. And we can go down on the list of all the great acts that came out of Cleveland. Just Ohio in general been the hotbed of funk, R&B, and the proof is in the pudding because music from that era and from those acts have been sampled numerous times, longer than a CVS receipt, and most famously as the recording of this podcast, uh, yesterday was the 24th anniversary of the death of the Notorious B.I.G. He sampled Between the Sheets for Big Papa. So what was your reaction when you first heard the Notorious B.I.G. sampling Big Papa? And did you get any contact from the people over at Bad Boy to get clearance for the sample? Well, to get clearance from, uh, they, they contacted uh, Sony ATV, who's the a, who's a, uh, a co-publisher of the song. So they didn't contact me, but they did They did get clearance for the publisher. Uh, but uh, when, when I heard it, I was I was happy that they used, you know, so much of the music, because you know I like uh, really like the music to that song, 
And when they used the, the, the full uh, music, I think they added maybe one other little part to it, but most of it was the original music. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm very um, happy every, anytime somebody wants to cover a song, you know, that I've written and, and or, you know, even sample it because that means, you know, they were, uh, they, they thought it was something good, you know, so I take it as a compliment. Right. And that's how the legacy lives on, because if you look at hip hop, they're just taking records from their parents or grandparents collection and just reintroducing it to a new generation. Now, how did It's Your Thing come about? It's Your Thing, that was, um, uh, we were still in high school at the time, the three of us younger guys. And uh, that was uh, O'Kelly, Rudolph and Ronald. Uh, they had just left Motown. And... Um, you know, they started another, their, their own record label. And that was the first release from there. Um, I think, the, you know, Ronald might have wrote the song, but um, that was their first release on Teaneck Records. I did not know that. That is what we do have beyond the album cover. We get facts and we know history. And like I mentioned, the catalog of the Osley Brothers is so deep and we can go down the line with all the hits. We mentioned this your thing. Who's that lady? Don't say goodnight. The cover of Seals and Cross, Summer Breeze and Fight the Power. Now I know for some radio stations, they had to do clever edits when the BS word was mentioned in the lyrics because I remember reading in America's Top 40, they had to add in rim shots from a drum in order to cover the edit. So what led to the inspiration of Fight the Power? Was it because of everything that was going on in the world at that time? Or how did that come about? Yeah, it was, it was uh, about current situations that were going on and in particular uh, in the record business. You know, uh, what was going on in the record business, you know, uh, a lot of the uh, artists couldn't get their uh, uh, music to cross over. And one of the, uh, the bridge of the song talks about that. You know, I tried to play my music to say my music was too loud. Tried talking about it, got the big runaround. And when I rolled with the punches, I got knocked on the ground by all this BS going down. You know, it was, it was talking about that particular thing that was going on in the business. And, um, you know, the fact that, you know, our, uh, a black artist had to, you know, jump over a lot of hurdles <laughs> in order to, you know, get over on the, um, the top 40 stations. Uh, so, and it was also a broad, much broader uh, uh, statement too. You know, people back then, um, they were having problems getting their, their uh, opinions heard. And, you know, the red tape that they had to go through, that's one of the lyrics in the song, the red tape in the way, you know. And um, it, was, it was kind of um, a voice for the people at the time. You know, that's, that's, that's what the lyrics were trying to, uh, uh, trying to cover with the lyric. But the the the, the state that that the statement the, the BS that, that happened spontaneously. That was uh, originally the original uh, word that was written on the page was nonsense. <laughs> you know, all this nonsense going down, and when Ronald started singing it, he just came out and said <laughs> he just came out and said the, the BS going down, and. Um, we, you know, we stopped for a moment and said, you know, you hear what he said, you know, he said, he said, and then we said, well, we came to the conclusion that people would probably say that anyway, instead of nonsense, you know what I mean? That would probably be the word they would naturally say. 
So we just left it in the album. And, uh, and for the single, we, we bleeped it. You know, we, we, we put a bleep over it. But then, like you were saying, other people, they did their own edits, you know. Right. When they would play the album version, they would do their own edits. Right. And you mentioned how back in those days, a lot of R&B acts had a hard time getting crossover play on Top 40. So was it where if you're on a label, the R&B and the pop departments didn't necessarily meet to cross talk and say, how can we get this act onto Top 40 or were they more expecting? If it's not Motown-like, where it's safe, we don't want to cross it over to Top 40. Well, it, see, it took a lot to cross an R&B record. Uh, if, if it didn't have a certain credentials, there's no use in even going to the top 40 stations because they wouldn't they wouldn't listen to what you had to say. So you had to build a history. You had to have, you know, a lot of airplay on the R&B side, heavy airplay. And then you had to have heavy sales as well. You know, the sales had to be, you know, you know, the top five in sales before they would even consider playing it on a top 40 station. So you had to build a history for Army. Cause that's, and that's why the, uh, say, the say the pop promotion people and the, and the R&B promotion people pretty much separate until the, 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 the black record had enough history so they could take it over to them. You see, I mean, that's how it worked. Right, cause I can remember uh, when Michael Jackson was putting out off the wall, it was regarded as an R&B album and it won pretty much every major award on the R&B side of things. And when he went into create Thriller, he was like, I'm gonna make an album that's pop because even though off the wall had pop sensibilities, it was being marketed and promoted as just an R&B record only. Yeah, that's originally, that's, that's how every black record came out originally, you know? It came out as an R&B record. It didn't come out as a pop record. That's what I said, because they wouldn't play it initially unless it had that history. So even Michael Jackson with Off the, Off the Wall, yeah. It, the promotion team that got it first was the R&B promotion team. You know, and then, and then they, they built the history and then he eventually crossed over. That's just how the business worked back then. But with Fight the Power, when you mentioned Fight the Power, Fight the Power was played by the top 40 station in New York before the R&B station. <laughs> that was, was so strange. One day I'm driving in my car, you know, I happen to, you know, flip the channels, I'm flipping through the channels and I hit WABC and I heard Fight the Power on there. And I said, wait, let me turn around. I turned around and said, hey, I, 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 I went over to Ernie's and I said, Ernie, I just heard Fight the Power on WABC, it just came out. You know, that never happened, you know. With, with any of our records. And um, that let me know that it, that album was gonna be a pretty big album. Right, and you mentioned WABC 77 Music Radio, WABC with Dan Ingram and all of those guys. And I'm just gonna throw out song titles and tell me the inspiration behind these songs. Uh, that Lady. Oh, that Lady, yeah, that was, um, that was the first single from the three plus three album. That's when we all, you know, were officially a six-man group, and um, that was a big single for us. Uh, I think that single went platinum. Um, yeah. The cover of "Summer Breeze." Yeah, "Summer Breeze." That was uh, that was one of the covers on that. That, that album had a, a few covers on it. One being "Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight" by um, 
James Taylor. And then the summer breeze seals across. Um, had a lot of fun doing that, uh, that album. Uh, because something, when you do a cover, you, you want to make it different. And we wanted to make it different from the original. And I think it was, uh, you know, uh, people thought that was our original song. Right, and that's a hallmark of doing a great cover is where people can say, you did the original justice, if not better. Choosy Lover. Yeah, Choosy Lover, that was on, uh, I think that was on the Between the Sheets album, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, but that, that's, that was the time when our group was going through like a lot of transitions. And, you know, I started to do more lead singing too. And I, I sang lead on there with Ronald. Um, one, one, you know, one of the few songs that I did that with, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was a that was a good song, a, a good song for us, and a big album for us because "Between the Sheets" was the first single from there. Mm, and Bone Thugs and Harmony sampled "Choosy Lover" for Buddha Lovers. We mentioned Cleveland earlier. They're one of the great rap acts that um, came out of Cleveland and was discovered by the late great Eazy. Mm -hmm. Between the Sheets. Let's talk about Between the Sheets. Between the Sheets, yeah. That was kind of a collab between um, uh, me, Ernie, and Marvin. Marvin wrote some some of the lyrics in like one of the verses, and but me and Ernie kind of collaborated on that. I I played uh, all the instruments on there. Um, that was all keyboards on that on that song, and um, it, it was um, it kind of knew it was special because um, the sound of it, you know, like the kid, like I I was alluding to chord structures again. Uh -huh. The chords were different. It was a little jazz in there, you know, a little jazz in, in the chords and a little bit of classical in there. And then the end, the end of the song, I edited on the end of the song completely because it was fading out. We were fading out on the, the chorus, Ooh Baby, you know, that part of it. And I said, it seems like it should go into something else at the end. And so um, I said, give me, give me a little time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do another ending. And um, I hooked up the drum machine, got the rhythm going, and then I just played all those parts on the end and, and made it go into something else and made the song a little more interesting. But it was, you know, it sent the album, that song sent the album to the number one, number one single. Um, really, really big album for us. And for the drum machine that was used on in Between the Sheets, was it a, uh, was it an 808? Uh, I think that was a Lin. Lin drum? I think because we use the 808 and we use Lynn sometimes too. Um, you know, and during that time period. It was it was I think it was a Lynn Lynn drum machine, yeah. Okay, because I know at that time drum machines were so new. Was it almost like trial and error in the studio trying to figure out how to program it, or did you already know what drum pattern to use when making that record? Yeah, right. That was the thing to come up with the drum pattern first. And then, and then program that pattern into the machine, you know. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that wasn't a, that wasn't difficult at all. It was just, you know, thinking of the the pattern first. That was the big thing. Mm. Voyage to Atlantis. Voyage to Atlantis, man. That's a that was a big showstopper for us in, in, in concerts too. Um, people really got into that song, you know. And it was, um, I think it was one of the songs that I liked um, particularly because, you know, usually when, 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 when a, a guitar solo is being played, 
the guy's kind of just like going for himself, you know. But in Atlantis, it was part of the melody, you know. It was it was like a go, singing along. The guitar was singing along with the lead vocal, and and I really like that that kind of touch to it. Mm-hmm. It has special touch because of that. Mm-hmm. For the love of you. Yes. Um, I wrote that song back in 75, yeah. And um, that that was the ballad, the song, because the, the Heat Is On album had funk on one side, starting with Fight The Power, and the B side started with For The Love Of You. And um, that was, I was really proud of the, how that song turned out. And and that, and people have, have reminded me and they say, you know, that's the first time that somebody used a synthesizer to, that played along with a vocal, <laughs> you know? And I said, you know, now that you mention it, uh, I, I think that's true. And, um, but that was just me trying to uh, bring the orchestra into a small ensemble, you know what I mean? Orchestra parts into a small ensemble. And that was, that was kind of a, um, I guess a, a, a thing that I use, a tool that I use in composing songs. Mm, and I should mention that you mentioned the use of the drum machine earlier in between the sheets and the use of the synthesizer and for the love of you, you embraced the new technology while other seasoned artists were running away from it and saying, hey, I'm not going to learn this because it's going to take my job. You embraced it and said, uh, I'm going to use it to my full effect and have it be integrated into what we're already doing. Yeah, and because, uh, first of all, I was, I was learning about synthesizers when I was in college. And uh, when it's, they started to make them uh, more user-friendly, user you know, that was the big thing to me because um, I don't know if people, <laughs> How many people uh, realize that synthesizers were very complicated machines at first when they first started to make them, and you had to know a lot about, you know, uh, engineering to even operate them. You know, but when they started making them more user friendly, um, I, I really started to use them more, and uh, I, they, they just fit what I was doing. Actually, they fit. They, like I said, they fit. They they played parts that I would you know write for an orchestra. You know what I mean? And they, they feel that that uh, uh, that musical uh, con- they made that musical connection for me because um, I could have had like a flute playing that part or an oboe, you know, that synthesizer line. But instead, the synthesizer was more accessible, you know, and it, and it was more consistent too. The sound was more consistent, you know. So I really I really was happy to. <laughs> start using synthesizers right and with the early use of technology we heard it previously with uh, stevie wonder peter frampton roger with the vocoder and how they're saying hey this is here we're going to use it to our full advantage and by you all being self-contained and writing producing the music that you guys wanted to do did the fight that stevie and marvin have at motown inspire all you guys say hey we're going to be self-contained because it's been well documented the fight that stevie had to put up with to get more creative control at motown when he was doing his later work and then marvin with uh what's going on 
Yeah, I mean, that was the thing at the time, is that self-contained bands were the thing to, to have for a labeled sign. Uh, you know, people who wrote their own music, who could play it, you know, and, you know, who could produce their own songs. I mean, that was the thing that every label was looking for. So that's why, you know, groups like Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, the Commodores, you know, they, they started to surface all over the place. Um, and, um, you know, we certainly had that going for us. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that was the thing to, the thing to have, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, you know. Uh, I mean, you name it, there was so many of them. You know, Chicago, I mean, even on the pop side, you know, uh, that was the thing that labels were looking for. Right. And it also helps them to say, hey, you, you can write, you can produce. We don't necessarily have to do all the work. It's almost like rolling the basketball out on the court and saying, go. Because I was reading when uh, Warner Brothers were looking at the signed prints. Initially, they wanted Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire to produce his albums. But they did a showcase in the studio. And once they saw what he could do, playing all the instruments, vocals, they said, nope. He's his own band. We're going to let him do his own thing. We're just going to let him go. You don't put a saddle on a Mustang. So what was your reaction when you first heard Prince? Uh, like you just said, a very talented individual, you know, um, playing those instruments and, you know, writing the type of songs he was writing. I mean, I, I could tell he, you know, he had, he had potential to be a, a big star, you know, a big, a big artist uh, from the very beginning. Uh, but they, you can always tell that, you know, I mean, there's something that uh, that that kind of talent, you can see it kind of immediately, you know, um, how far, how, how far, or how big a person's got to be. That's another thing. You know, nobody really knows that. But, you know, um, when, when you see that, you can tell, hey, this person has a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. And one that we lost too soon. Now, what were some of the acts that you ended up doing a lot of touring with? Did you do a lot of touring with Parliament, a lot of touring with Zap, and a lot of the Dayton, Cincinnati-based acts? Well, we did tour with Zap. We toured with, you know, Parliament. We toured with uh, Grand Central Station, you know, Larry Graham, uh, Brothers Johnson, uh, <laughs> all of them. Oh, uh, um, what? I can't think of some, some of these names now. Did y'all like, do with Cameo and Confunction? Yeah, this, a lot of the jazz festivals we did, like, you know, we took Aretha Franklin was on. I mean, it was just about everybody who had, you know, a big record, you know, out there. Uh, except for except for the Motown artists. You know, they, they kind of did their own thing, you know, like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Uh, they weren't on any of those tours, but uh, just about everybody else was. So. Mm -hmm. Now, did you all call? You band, you know, I mean, you know, it was like a lot of different people. Wow. Taste of Honey. I mean, I mean, I, I can't even remember all of them right now. Wow. And uh, did you all cross paths with uh, Rick James? Rick, that's that's like another Motown artist. You know, Motown kind of did a different thing. You know, they they didn't get on a lot of those uh, uh, jazz festivals, like, you know, those big tours. Uh, they kind of, they arranged their tours a different way. But uh, like I said, everybody else though, 
Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> I mean, you name it. Yeah. Mm. So what was it like for you all when, whenever you guys would fly out to LA to go do a taping of Soul Train and interacting with uh, the late Don Cornelius? That was fun. Soul Train was always fun to do. You know, a nice studio, studio had a nice sound to it, you know, and then you had that other element of people dancing to your music while you're playing, you know, which was pretty cool for a TV show, you know. Uh, and then you knew, you know, that everybody, you know, on Saturday morning was going to tune in, you know, and watch Soul Train. So it was uh, it was a really good show for promotional reasons too to do. Right. It definitely was. It still is relevant to the culture as we see with BET in the drama series American Soul, how they even had artists such as Elton John, David Bowie wanted to come and get on the Soul Train to broaden their base because a lot of R&B or back in those days, they were called Black or Soul Stations were playing their records. And that was the go-to spot if you were looking right. to gain that demographic. Absolutely right. That was that was the place to go. I mean, that's of all the TV shows that you wanted to play. It was Soul Train was was on the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And then I can remember as well in the early '80s, particularly 1981. This year it'll be the 40 year anniversary of MTV. And how when MTV first came on, they were pretty much playing everything that was either top 40 or rock and how they weren't playing any black artist videos. And Rick James went to the press, made a big fuss about that. And then Walter Yetnikoff, who was head of CBS at the time, called MTV and said, we're gonna pull our entire catalog unless you play Michael Jackson. So did you guys have that same fight when you guys had videos already made, trying to get played on MTV and then going over to BET where B they welcomed you all with open arms? Well, it's funny because um, as a six-member Isley Brothers group, we didn't do that many videos. I think we did like one video, you know, and um, we we made more after uh, the group split up. Isley Jasper Isley made three videos, you know, and so um, those got played on MTV. The Isaac Jasper Isley. I don't know about the first one. Uh, it, was, it was for a song called Ballad for a Fallen Soldier. And um, I'm not sure, I don't think that got played on uh, MTV. It got played on some other you know, networks, but not MTV. Mm -hmm. Now I want to back up a little bit and talk about the studio process and how some of those records I mentioned earlier, there was a part one and a part two where the grooves were going so good, you had to cut the song in two. Now, how do you know when to say, okay, we're going to stop at this time frame in the record or keep going and we're going to extend it out to a part one and a part two? Well, usually singles were between uh, three minutes and three and a half minutes uh, during that time period. That's that's the, the length that they would play on most stations. You know, if it was over that time, you know, if it was more than that, it, it, you'd have to turn the record over, you know, and, and finish it on the B side. And that's why, that's why it was part one and part two. When you got to a certain time, maybe 
340 at the tops, you have to turn it over, you know, and, and put it on side B if, if the song continued to go. So that's why it was a part one and part two. It had to do with timing, you know, how much time you had for side A. And then, like I said, if we, if we continued, as a part B. Mm -hmm. Now with those records in the contracts, is it stipulated where they're treated as two separate songs as far as for the publishing and credits, or is it treated as one record even though it's split into two parts? That's a good question. It's, it's, it's treated as two separate songs for publishing. Get to bite the apple twice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially when you are the writer or the producer, because for those of you that don't know, music industry one-on-one, write, write, write. And if you write a good record, you're still going to be living where the money resides, and that's in your bank account, Ask Mr. Jasper. That's right. That's, that's the, um, the lifeblood of the industry is, is the songwriting. That's, that's where everything begins. You know, a lot of people, you know, look at imaging and all of that stuff. Well, that's that's just part of it. I mean, if you don't have good material, you're not going to be heard, really. I mean, nobody's going to be interested, you know. And that goes that goes for really, really talented people, too, because I, I know people might have heard the, the story about the Temptations. They, at one point, they were, they were called the Hitless Temptations, <laughs> as good as they sang. And the reason they were hitless is because this, the material they were singing was not, you know, really up to par. They didn't have the uh, My Girls and, you know, Ain't Too Proud to Begs from the beginning. <laughs> you know, those songs came later. So uh, it's always about the song. No matter what talent, how much talent you have. You know, I've, I've heard Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell sing some songs that were, you know, like, not they're not quite there, you know, as good as they sing, you know. But then when they got that good song, you know, bam, you know, they, they did great things. So it's always the song. And Motown uh, was a company that realized that. You know, Barry Gordy was a songwriter. And he understood that, you know, hit records come from good songs. And they had, you know, meetings <laughs> about, you know, picking, you know, the, the singles. Their product meetings, you know, they to get together in one room and they would, they would, you know, rate the songs. And uh, they understood that. And I think that's why Motown was such a powerhouse. Right. And they're the American songbook that songs have been covered numerous times. And you mentioned the quality control meetings that Barry Gordy had. He took that from his days working at the GM factory and he had their in-house writers ranging from Holland Dozier Holland, Norman Whitfield, Ashford and Simpson, so on and so forth. And they would make sure that before it left the building, it was gonna be a hit and it wasn't gonna be a stiff. Now, also at this same time, out of Memphis, you had the funk coming out of stacks and how they were having pop success without all the fluff, pomp, and circumstances of Motown, but it was still funky in their own right. So what was that like kind of seeing their success and having pop come to them and not the other way around? That's pretty, uh, that, was, that was pretty unique, you know, uh, back, especially during those times. But um, like I said, it's, you know, 
it's in the music. If, if, if you put good uh, quality music out, you have so much better of a chance of it being successful. And for, you know, people to grab it that you don't expect will grab onto it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I said, I didn't expect Fight the Power to be played by WCP, ABC first. <laughs> there was no way I was expecting it. I was expecting it to go through the, the normal channels that everything else went through, right? So, but if you put to do something good, you don't, sometimes you don't know how well it's going to do or who's going to grab it first. You know, who's going to say, hey, man, I want to see back then, uh, program directors took pride in breaking records. You know, if they got something first, say, I hate to say, I played it first, I broke this record. Uh, that's what, Maybe that's what happened with, with, with stacks, you know. I know that's what happened with Top Fight the Power. You know, somebody said, hey, man, I want to be the first one to break this record because, you know, there's it a lot to it. And, man, they put it on. You know, it wasn't a lot of uh, program directors had the power to play what they wanted to. And that was the beautiful thing about that era, you know, is that they were, they were competing against each other. You know, who broke this record? Who broke that one? You know, uh, and they were all, everybody was looking for good music, you know, to do just that with. Right. And I think the main reason how back in the 50s and 60s you had R&B artists trying their hardest to go over the pop, if we look at the five heartbeats, and you know the scene where their manager, I believe, showed them the album cover, how it was faceless. Mm -hmm. And the mindset mm -hmm. at that time was no white audience is going to buy a record if you have black faces on it. Do you know if uh, Rudolph, Ronald, and O'Kelly experienced that initially when they were a three-man group with the faceless album covers and just the stuff that we hear about from groups from that era of the 50s and 60s and trying to gain that crossover traction? Yeah, I, I remember when they were, when they, actually it was with Motown. There was one album where they weren't on the front of the front of the album. Um, there was some other people like playing with a beach ball or something. I don't know what it was, but yeah, one of their albums was was like that. Um, but then the rest of them had their picture on it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know the reason why it happened because I, you know, I was I was too young. I was in high school. I didn't I didn't know what they were doing over there more time. But uh, yeah, one of their one of their covers was didn't have them on the front. Right, and then also back in those days too, for people that don't know, there was a dirty little word that started with a P called payola, where there was some underhanded stuff going on with independent promoters and DJs where it would be various things exchanged in order for a record to break. And then that's why you start to seeing PDs and MDs and radio stations to say, we're gonna control what's being played and then we saw how it took down Alan Freed, but Dick Clark came out scot free because he gave up names and divested and became loved and lured. Yeah, that's that's you know that's a part of the business that you know I really didn't know much about. I heard about it, you know, I heard about some things now and then, but um, I never got into that. You know, I never, you know, especially when I started my own label. I, I, I don't get into that. I, I you know leave that alone. I, I heard, but I heard a lot about it. You know, just like you did. Um, but uh, I think the thing that you can uh, do as an artist is just make the best record you can make. 
You know what I mean? Come up with the best song you can make because a lot of people weren't taking payola, you know, and they would play music simply because it was good, you know, and that's the thing you, you don't hear about a lot. You know, there were, there were people who were just, hey man, they were just fans of music. They got it, they played it, you know, and um, that's, that's the good side of the business. <laughs> right, know? right. And at the same time in the 70s, funk was going and then we had the explosion of disco with DGs, Tavares, everything that was coming out of those little labels in Florida, like TK, and then we got Casablanca. So how were you guys able to coexist with everything that was going with disco and then when we saw the backlash of the Disco Sucks movement that was started by Steve Dahl at WLUP in Chicago, how it had racist and homophobic undertones where we don't like this music, but subliminally we're saying we don't like you and you know the you who I'm talking about. Well, it's like Disco, this was, disco was kind of a phenomenon that came up pretty fast. You know, it was uh, it was something something that came from the clubs. You know, uh, what people were playing in the clubs, and um, clubs were big back then. You know, you know the, the name disco. They call them discos. You know, they were places where people would go and dance. You know, and have drinks. You know, and a lot of records that weren't played on the radio were played in the clubs, right? And so the clubs got so big that radio started to play what was being played in the clubs, you know? And, um, you know, like I said, PDs used to go to clubs to hear what was being played in the clubs. Uh, and um, it became a big thing, you know, really fast. But then, you know, I think around 79, was it? You know, kind of went, went went out, you know, and um, but as as a musician, I never I never got into that because that was never that was never our thing, really. You know what I mean? The the song that we that I wrote that got into the clubs was "Live It Up." You know, that kind of put the Isley Brothers into the clubs. You know, with that song, um, but. We never recorded a song just for the fact of, you know, joining the disco thing. You know, we still, I still try to maintain, you know, our songwriting style. All even through this, there was only one song that, um, that that I wrote that had a disco title, and that's a disco night. But uh, it was still just an R&B dance song. You know, it was, it didn't have the L. It had funk in it. You know what I mean? It was called Disco Night. But it had funk in it, and um, we we just didn't join that that uh, that kind of uh, thing that was going on. But it was very popular. I mean, extremely popular. And then it and then it stopped. You know. Right. And what was the primary difference between Osley Brothers funk and James Brown funk with you know Fred and. Bootsy, Catfish, all of those guys working with James? Uh, of course, the bigger band, number one. <laughs> you know, James Brown had the horns, you know, and all that. 
And, um, but, but he was more, it was more in, uh, if, if I could say it was a different, it was more rhythmic. Even his vocals, you know, was about rhythm first. Um, our funk was about rhythm, but also was about instrumentation. What, what, what parts, you know, a lot more keyboard involvement because of me, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and, um, uh, melodies were a little different than James, you know, because uh, he was, he was, uh, the song, he was kind of leading the songs, in other words. And our music, our music was leading uh, the funk. And then the, the vocal was just, you know, singing, telling the story. And, and I, th I think that's the difference between the two things. Now, when writing, how'd you know what records would suit your voice or suit Ronald's voice? Did you guys do references to try to figure out who sounded best on what record? That happened later on, like as a group, uh, like into the 80s. You know, like that's that's when, um, uh, well, I started, you know, singing more on the records. Uh, but I always sing the the, the, the guy vocal to, to songs I wrote. I mean, because, you know, Ronald didn't know him. So, you know, I, I would always do that. Um, and I think over the years, you know, when, when we, especially when we do live concerts, you know, I had a segment in the show where I would come out and do lead. And, you know, they knew, they knew that, you know, the, the talent was there, you know, and we, and we started to share more lead parts, uh, even the backgrounds, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of the backgrounds instead of uh, Kelly and Rudolph who were originally <laughs> the backgrounds, you know? And so, um, yeah, that, that happened a lot. Uh, but then, you know, there were, there were the problems within the group and, you know, we couldn't continue as six members. Uh, and I think it was 84, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to my next question, uh, the spinoff group, Isley Jasper Isley. Mm -hmm. So tell me about, about Isley Jasper Isley. Yeah, that was our return to our original group that we, the, the three of us younger guys had. While they were with Motown, we had a, a group and we were high school students, but we, you know, I played piano, Ernie played drums, Marvin played bass. And eventually we started to play with the older brothers, you know, uh, through the early 70s and 73, that's when everybody saw us on the record. But we were playing on the records before that. So Isaac Jasper Isaac was returned to our original group that we started, you know, a long, long time ago. And, um, you know, we, we still carried on recording the same way that we had been doing with, with, with the other guys, because we always did all the music anyway. So nothing changed as far as that was concerned. The big difference with IJI was, um, you know, the lead vocal who was gonna sing the song, <laughs> you know? And um, that's the only difference it was. Mm. So tell me about the making of Insatiable Woman. Wow, that's a, that was a song that I knew right away it was gonna be a, a, a good song. Um, when I wrote it, I called Ernie up on the phone and said, Ernie, I got one. <laughs> so, and I, I sang it to him on the phone, you know. I said, it's, it's, it's got a good feel to it, you know. Um, and we ended up doing a video. That's one of the Isaac, Isaac Jasper Isaac videos. Um, my wife Margie played the part, you know, with me. And I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, 
done it, you know, we, we filmed it in Manhattan. And, uh, but that was, you know, Caravan of Love was another really good video. Uh, I appreciated that, how they produced that one, you know, because the lyric, they seem, they seem to capture the lyric, you know, in the, in the video. And, and I thought they did a good job doing that. Mm-hmm. With Insatiable Woman, because I can remember it being played during the early years of BET, because my aunt, she had on a Betamax tape of old videos from Video Vibrations, and that was one of the videos that were being played. And also Brett Jones and the TP Mob sample Insatiable Woman for Good Time. That's one of the many records that sample Insatiable Woman. And then Caravan of Love, my favorite record. And every time I hear that, I think of Dodge Caravans. And Dodge could have said, man, we're going to use this record to sell some Dodge Caravans. But the message of the song and the video is still needed to this day, given the turmoil that's going on in this country. Yeah, Caravan, uh, you know, it's, it's based on the scriptures, you know, uh, and when I wrote it, you know, I, I I thought it, even back then, you know, it was, a, it was an important message to get out, you know, um, you know, people, uh, it's, it's talking about a time when, you know, it, it we'll be living in a world of peace, you know, and peace, peace will be the thing that uh, is, is all over the world, and uh, that's the kind of message in that song, and um, I was I was glad that Dodge picked it up. You know what I mean? Uh, um, we kind of wrote to him and said, "Hey, you know, I think this will be a good a good song, you know, for for your product, you know." And they eventually picked it up, and um, because I think the more those those kind of messages get out there, it's the better for everybody. You know, it's just the way I felt about that song, and this to this day. So many people know that song. They, they've covered it so many times, and um, I didn't know. I didn't know it was. I, I knew it would be a good song. I knew it would be big, but I didn't know how big. You know, right? It, it, just, it exceeded my expectations. Right, you know? that definitely did. And how you mentioned songs from. Isley Jasper Isley's catalog and the Isley Brothers catalog has been covered numerous times. Like I said, specifically the Beatles covered a uh, twist and shout and how the UK, they love and revere US R&B. The whole Northern Soul movement was pretty much their take on Motown. If you listen or look at any interviews from people such as Freddie Mercury, George Michael, Boy George, Adele, Sam Smith, Phil Collins, pretty much anybody born and bred in England, they state how much they love U.S. R&B and how acts like Osley Brothers and so on and so forth paved the way for what what they do and they pay homage every chance they get. Rolling Stones as well. Oh yeah, uh, that's for sure. I mean, you know, every presenter that I know in England plays R&B, you know, every single one of them, you know? And it's like, um, I just hope here in America that Americans realize the value, you know, of R&B and jazz and the blues, those things that are American made, those things began in America and they're part of our heritage, you know what I mean? And because um, sometimes, you know, we have so much here, you know, so much here is going on. Sometimes we can lose sight of, you know, those valuable pearls, 
you know, that, that we have. And um, that's why I always tell people, man, you know, go back, review, you know, learn, learn what happened back there, you know, in the, in the ragtime era, you know, the blues era, you know, the, the, the jazz and how things progressed, you know, study that stuff because that's, I said, I couldn't, I couldn't have written anything that I wrote without my his, knowing the history of, of music. Because I learned that I learned almost everything from the history of music. You know, I had a certain talent, I had a certain ear, but there were certain uh, mechanics and nuts and bolts and things that I wouldn't have known had I not studied. And I think that's an important message to get to people. You know, don't just go by your own inclinations. Go back and study. Realize you you you'll find you'll find out more about yourself when you go back and study history. Right. You know? Right, and I'm going to stay in the Midwest right here for this two-part question. What was your take when you first heard the production sounds and styles of Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, and then L.A. Reid and fellow Midwester like yourself from Indianapolis, Indiana, Kenneth Babyface Edmonds? I like both of them. I, I was like, you know, I knew both of them had their own kind of direction, you know, but they both had, you know, a lot of substance. In their music, and which that's what I liked about both, you know, both of the, uh, the the people that you just mentioned. I mean, really, they you know, hot, hot stuff. Right, because when I listen to a lot of Jam and Lewis productions by them growing up in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, they pretty much had a lot of exposure to AM radio, Top Forty, AOR, and I think that's how their records had that pop sensibility to it with the funk undercurrent to make it accessible to a pop audience without losing its grittiness of the funk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, you, you, you know, it's a lot of, uh, and, and that's what I'm saying, people who knew music, people who know music can find their own direction better, you know what I mean, than, than people who don't know music. And, and I think, uh, I think that's something that we can't lose touch of, you know, we have to remember, hey man, it's the, it's the songwriters, it's the, it's the producers that really changed music and who really contributed a lot to music. You know, the, the artists too, you know, the singers too. But without that, you know, the Asher and Simpson, we don't have Ain't No Mountain High Enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? A huge song that everybody seems to know. You know what I mean? The, the, the inception it comes from some some place, you know, and to some people, and it comes into somebody's mind. And um, knowing music, you can you can be a better songwriter, and you can you know you can have better material. Right, and then also out of the Midwest at that same time, we have both of these bands from Michigan, Ready for the World from Flint, and Dream Boy out of I believe Oak Park, Michigan. They were signed to Quest Records, which was. Quincy Jones label, then also cannot forget a switch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just so just so many people, just so many artists, so talented. And um, I'd like to see more variety like that nowadays. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, you had so many different artists going in different directions, but you know, it was all good stuff. You know what I mean? You could you could recognize an artist's style, you know. Earth, when the fire song came out, you could tell, okay, that's Earth, when the fire, you know, or there's James Brown, you know, <laughs> but they had their, it was all R&B, you know what I mean? That was a beautiful thing that, about all of that diversity mm. in one genre. 
Right. And back before 87, I'm going to talk about this young Wonder Kid producer. R&B and hip hop didn't necessarily stay in the same room. They were in the same room, but they were just on two separate sides. But when a young man by the name of Teddy Riley came in and merged the two, it was full on bliss. So what was your take when you started to hear some of Teddy's productions and seeing how R&B was shifting to a more harder hip hop edge because prior to his production and also Full Force as well, R&B was very plush, smooth, adult, Anita Baker, Sade, Freddie Jackson, Melba Moore, that whole crew from Hush Productions and how Teddy Riley and then later Guy single-handedly took R&B to be younger. Well, yeah, when you mentioned all those artists, you were mentioning, you know, balladeers, you know, R&B. R&B also includes funk, <laughs> you know, you, you know, higher ground, superstition. Uh, uh, um, thank you for letting me be myself, you know, uh, take me to the next phase. Showdown, fight the power. You see, when you say, you know, Teddy kind of merged them, he, he changed it a little bit from the balladeer, but you can't take the funk away from R&B. That's, that's what you have to remember. Funk has always been there, you know. Matter of fact, that's, that's probably how he got some, some of those rhythms from, is from the funk part of R&B. That's, that's the part that a lot of people don't equate with R&B, but it is. It is it's, part of, it's, it's all part of the same thing. Right. And what led to the formation of Gold City? Um, my solo career. When, when, I, when, when uh, I did Superbad, you know, I formed Gold City Rec Records. I wanted to have the creative freedom you know, to do whatever I wanted to, you know, and um, and, and I also sign other artists, you know, if I saw someone I really, you know, like, uh, I could do that too. So, um, yeah, that came with the beginning of my solo career and Superbad kind of, you know, kicked that off. Mm, and songwriting 101, people, keep it publishing, keep it publishing, keep it publishing. Don't trade it in for a couple of bucks in a Cadillac because that's how some of those artists back in the olden days lost out and if it wasn't for maybe somebody that knew the inside of how the business works mechanical royalties point structure and said hey i'm gonna buy your catalog but revert them back to you so that you can make sure that you're owed what you're due yeah that's that's a big that's a big thing that um a lot of people didn't understand you know when they when they uh, sign contracts is what they were giving away you know, what they were giving up. And you need to understand, you know, the copyright law or have a, an attorney that understands copyright law uh, when, you're, when you're going into a, no, a deal. Um, I, would, I would suggest, you know, get a good, good attorney that understands copyright and contracts. You know, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And we touched on this earlier with uh, the Big Papa sample by Notorious B.I.G. Now, in the early days of rap, a lot of samples were being used unauthorized and they weren't going through the proper channels. And they were kind of sort of hoping, like, we hope this song doesn't hit because the attorneys or whoever owns the publishing to the record would come knocking and say, 
we want retro pay, we want restitution, because look at what happened with Viz Marquis when he illegally sampled Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally, where Gilbert O'Sullivan told Warner Brothers, take his I Need a Haircut album off the shelf because you illegally used the sample. Now, were you going after a lot of the rappers that were using Ozzy Brothers samples unauthorized before all the legal paperwork and everything started to come into play? Um, not really. I didn't, we didn't have to because most of them did come to the right channel. Uh, like, like most of the rappers were signed to labels that would take them through the right channels. You know what I mean? So most of the samples, we didn't have to go after anybody for, uh, maybe there was a couple that, um, that, that Sony went, went after, you know, but not many, you know, most, most people went through the right channel. Right. And you mentioned the formation of Gold City and how with the age of streaming, how record labels are not really the big powerhouses like they once were, where they control what was played on radio, how your records were getting distributed. Because once Napster and everything started to come into play and people said, I'm not going to pay $20 for a CD. I'm just going to download these songs. I felt like the music industry was slow to adapt because they were living half the hawk, as we would say, and didn't really see the technology boom coming. Yeah, I think I think it surprised a lot of people when that happened. Um, and I don't I don't know why, uh, even to this day, someone hasn't um, come up with a solution to that problem. You know what I mean? It, they seem to be able to, you know come up with other technology, you know, uh, pretty much every six months, <laughs> you know, um, and it uh, seems like they should have a way of uh, protecting the, the, the intellectual property. You know, I would like to see that come about because a lot, many of the artists are affected the worst because, you know, they're the last ones to get paid, you know, and usually they have the smallest percentage of whatever is being you know earned on a particular album or, or, or record so they're, they're catching it you know what i mean the artists are really it's really bad for artists that what's going on with, with the downloads and all right because as we know like you stated artists are the last to be paid picture you're sitting at the table you got a big plate all the fixings all the helpings Everybody sitting at the table is going to get their fair share, eat the crumbs, and you'd be lucky if you have scraps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, that's why I say uh, people have to understand either contracts or copyright law because that's where everything, that's, that's what decides what you're going to earn is that contract you sign. Right. You know, whatever and, sign, that's what you're sign, that's what you're going to get paid. Mm -hmm. and own your masters and I think that was what was brilliant about Prince and Michael Jackson may they both rest in peace how they were astute at learning the business and knowing the inner mechanics and I think they were sharing it with everybody in the business saying hey own your stuff own your stuff own your stuff do it yourself yeah it's 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 tough. I mean, it's not easy to do it yourself. You know what I mean? It's not easy to have your own label. You, 
you, you end up working a lot more, you know, than if you're assigned to a company, but you see everything, you know what I mean? You see every dollar that comes in, you know, you know where you're promoting the record, you know where you're not promoting it, you know, but it takes, it takes a lot of work though. And uh, that's, but that's the difference. You know, you have to work hard. You have to work hard to push your product. Right. And you have the upper hand when labels come to you, because if we look at the early days of hip hop, a lot of acts like MC Hammer, Too Short, Master P, E-40, they were selling their albums independently, selling it out of the trunk and going from place to place in different regions of the country, selling their records. So by the time the majors came knocking, they said, hey, we want to sign you. But they're able to say, no, I sold these these albums independently and I got this much in sales. I want this deal because Master P, when he signed this deal with Priority for No Limit, he was able to negotiate an 80-20 split. And then when he did the I'm About It movie, he put up the money himself and he was able to keep all of the money from all of the VHS sales. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good deal. Yeah. Well, if you, if you, the more you can control, the better off it, you know, you'll be. And that was a good example of it. Mm, so with that being said, with we're kind of reverting back to the do-it-yourself era. Do you think that the music industry will correct itself and say, hey, we know we're not going to have numbers like prior to the digital download explosion, but work alongside these artists and say, hey, we're just going to have the promotion arm as long as you come to us already packaged, already built, have your fan base already built, we're going to push you out because gone are the days where labels are going to sign you to a development deal and wait for you to be ready. You got to be ready to go right now if you're going to sign to a major. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I just hope somebody comes up with a, a solution to the download thing because that's, that's what's put the... The, the business in such a uh, a funny situation, you know, is the fact that people can go and download stuff for free, you know, um, that's a lot of money, uh, but you know, that's being lost, you know, and so um, I think the key of getting a business back on track is to solve that problem. You got to solve that problem before you can uh, build the business back up, you know, to where it used to be. Right, because the numbers in those quarterly checks for those streaming numbers doesn't add up because I had a friend of mine who I interviewed a couple of months ago. He shared with me that a songwriter who shall remain nameless wrote a prolific song for a prolific group in the 80s and how it got over 2 million streams on Spotify, but the quarterly check only added up to a couple thousand dollars. And it really didn't, the, the numbers didn't really add up. And I think that, the laws of copyright should be changed to account for digital. So that way the correct numbers could be rectified and that the songwriters and stakeholders get what they're worth when everybody downloads a song or streams it. Because as we know with the metrics of the industry, they're taking into account downloads now for record sales. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. And it's, it has to be that that has to be solved. The, the downloading situation has to be solved in order for the business to get back on the track that it used to be on, because that's too much money being lost. You know what I mean? Uh, even with even if you change the streaming numbers, 
you know, to something a little more fair. That even that's not going to make up for what's being lost with the download, you know. So um, I think that has uh, maybe somebody's working on it now. I don't know. <laughs> But I really hope they, they do solve that problem. Yeah, we hope that we get that rectified. And to close out on this, like I mentioned at the top of the interview, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will be inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame this year. Grammy Award Lifetime Achievement recipient and how the Osley brothers and the spinoff group Osley, Jasper Osley, still managed to stay relevant decades later of course you know with uh ronald's work with uh r kelly with mr biggs and the samples and everything just looking back what do you say is what makes everything so special about ozzy jasper Isley, the ozzy brothers to where my generation generations after me generations before me all know love your music revere it so much that they want to sample it and keep it going for to the end of time. Well, I mean, I, I, um, I just I just looked at you know what we were doing as just doing the best we could, putting our best foot forward, you know, using all the things that I learned uh, to put into to music, you know, um, and and also you know lyrically making the lyrics important, you know, something that people could. You know, like if you read the lyric to a song, it reads like a poem, you know what I mean? Uh, it, and it has meaning and substance to it. Uh, I think those things were, were important too when we were, you know, putting those songs together. Um, so, you know, I'm just happy that, that it was able to do what it did. You know, uh, the people, the people got, got the point. You know, I mean, that's that's the thing that a, a songwriter wants to do. He wants to deliver a message and he wants that message to be well received. And when they when you make that connection, uh, I think that's the success. Uh, and I think that's what's, you know, added to the longevity of the music is that we made that connection, you know. Uh, and um, like I said, at the time, we were just trying to do something good, you know try to keep up with everybody else <laughs> and you guys did more than that so talk about current projects that you have on gold city well right now you know i uh i have a new single out uh the way you love me uh it's the first single that's from an album that i want to come out this summer um but also i did an album previous to this uh it was an, an album of covers and for the love of you was one of the covers that, that's on that album um, and it's, it's entitled for the love of you, the CD. But uh, since I've been solo, I've done 16 solo albums. This is number 17 this year. And there's a lot of music. You know, if you go to chrisjasper.com, you can find all of my music. Um, starting with Superbad, you know, on up to uh, this new one, The Way You Love Me. Okay. So do you have any people you'd like to thank before we conclude this interview? And you mentioned uh, chrisjasper.com. Do you have any other forms of social media? That's that You can get to everything from chrisjasper.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything. Uh, all my music, uh, chrisjasper.com. But I do like to thank you know everyone who, um, uh, all the fans, uh, all the presenters and DJs and program directors, because they all play a role, you know, in, in the success. 
And um, I never take I never take anybody for granted. And um, I've always felt that way. And I just I just want to tell everybody that's that they're appreciated, you know. Right. And like I stated at the top of this interview, it has been an honor. It's been a privilege to have you on the podcast. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Verbal, wherever you stream. And the video portion will be available on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover altogether. Ladies and gentlemen, if we were in a room, I'll tell you guys, stand up and be on your feet and give this man the full bouquet everything because we have a living legend in our midst rock and roll hall of fame member grammy award lifetime achievement recipient we'll be inducted into the songwriter hall of fame this year legend thank you wholeheartedly once again mr chris jasper of the isley brothers and isley jasper isley thank you for coming on to beyond the album cover sure it's my pleasure thanks for having me no problem